Hey, this is Josh Levine, the host of One Year. I hope you're enjoying our season on 1955. This week, we have another story from senior producer Evan Chung. Growing up in Fairbanks in the 1950s, Karen Perdue says every Alaskan kid learned the same phrase. There's only three places for you to go, inside, outside, or morningside. Inside meant they'd keep living at home in Alaska. Outside meant they'd move to the continental United States. And Morningside meant Morningside Hospital, a mental institution more than 2,000 miles away in Portland, Oregon. If you were a child and your mother or father wanted you to do something, sometimes they would say to you, you know, if you don't get your act together, you might be going to Morningside. So it, it was a scary place. Because if you ever needed mental health care, Morningside is where you would be shipped off to. There were no treatment centers in the entire American territory of Alaska. None of those things existed. Alaska was still a very isolated territory. There just was not any care. Morningside wasn't a government-run facility. It was a private, family-owned institution somehow charged with taking care of every mentally ill patient from Alaska. The process to get care at Morningside was grueling and bizarre. Step one was you had to get arrested. It didn't matter if you wanted to go voluntarily or if your family was concerned about you. A warrant would be put out and a U.S. Marshal would take you away. There would be a jury of six men impaneled to decide if you were convicted of being insane. This wasn't a panel of experts deciding, just a regular jury of random male residents and a federal commissioner. These verdicts were usually made without any input from doctors. And while their cases were being heard, they were locked up. You would be held in whatever kind of jail there was, even if you were a child. Children with developmental disabilities were among the people declared insane. So were people struggling with alcoholism and elderly people with dementia. A disproportionate number of the defendants were Native Alaskans. When it was time to be taken to the hospital in Portland, that journey could start with a thousand-mile trip just to get to an Alaskan port, in the early days by dog sled or stagecoach. And then you still had to get to Oregon. Airlines had the right to refuse to carry passengers that were deemed insane. So a patient might be put on a boat wearing a straitjacket for eight days, all while in distress. After getting treatment at Morningside Hospital, some Alaskans were released and eventually returned home. But for many, it was a one-way ticket. Yeah, it's thousands, thousands of people who either lived out their full life there or died precipitously. Karen Perdue became Alaska's Commissioner of Health and Social Services in the 1990s. In that role, she kept meeting people whose loved ones had been lost to Morningside. I was used to going to communities and hearing about how people just disappeared from your family. And then it occurred to me that one of my dad's brothers was in that category. All she knew about her Uncle Guilford was the family lore, that as a child, he started acting funny and then was taken from his small village on the Yukon River and disappeared. That was in the 1930s. In the mid-50s, 
the system was exactly the same. Alaskans were desperate to change that, to bring proper mental health treatment much closer to home. Everyone wanted more care to be available here. And there's just numerous efforts to fix this. But Alaska wasn't a state yet. They didn't have the power to build a facility without the help of the U.S. government. Then finally, in 1955, things looked like they might change. By that point, Alaskans had elected a delegate to Congress who was a fierce advocate for statehood. His name was Bob Bartlett. We want to have statehood so that our vast resources can be unlocked. But Alaska cannot so long as it remains shackled under this territorial status. Bartlett was a popular figure back home, and he hammered Washington for depriving Alaskans of their rights. The Congress would never even permit us to take care of our mentally ill. Bartlett made it his mission to ditch Morningside forever. He didn't get to vote in Congress, but he could introduce legislation. So he offered up a bill to unlock federal land so that Alaska could finally build its own mental health facility. It was a million acres of land and $6 million to fix the system. On July 25, 1955, the bill passed out of committee. Several months later, it sailed through the full U.S. House of Representatives in a unanimous voice vote. Alaskans were filled with optimism that the barbaric system was finally about to end. And then, to everybody's shock, something stopped the bill in its tracks. It was a rumor that this wasn't really going to be a hospital for the mentally ill. This was going to be a gulag for patriotic Americans. This week, we're tracing the origins of a far-right conspiracy theory. And like most conspiracy theories, this one's all over the place. We're going to take some wild leaps from coast to coast and uncover a strange tale involving brainwashing, Scientology, and a vast network of communist hunting housewives. <laughs> what charming names you communists think of to hide behind. But you're just like all of them. Filth. Filth. They see themselves needing to be on guard so that they can weed out people trying to indoctrinate their communities. They had formulated a plan to infiltrate all levels of society, and the obvious force to implement this plan was psychiatry. This is one year, 1955. Siberia, USA. To understand the conspiracy theory that derailed the Alaskan mental health bill, we first need to leave Alaska for a while and head 3,000 miles south along the Pacific coast. In the early 1950s, there was something in the air in Southern California, the scent of the orange groves, the roar of the automobiles, and a radio broadcast beaming out to huge audiences every week from the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. The Freedom Story. The Freedom Story presented dramatizations of the little problems perplexing the average citizen. The price of coffee, 
children eating too much candy, whether or not to buy a power lawnmower, and the tyranny of taxation. Dr. Fifield, my husband usually is well informed, but I can't see how any business can expand under such a high tax rate. That, of course, is the problem. In episode after episode, the worldview on display was the same. That government was encroaching on the American way of life. So when you pay your taxes, remember that not only does government have its hand in your purse, but it is getting more and more of your life into its control. The L.A. church that produced the Freedom Story was a fountain of those kinds of beliefs. But it wasn't the only one. Southern California was blossoming into a hotbed of right-wing activity. As the aerospace industry created new jobs, and as Walt Disney built a theme park, millions poured into suburban towns like Anaheim and Pasadena. Southern California is booming. Michelle Nickerson is a professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago. And what you see is this very educated and affluent population of mostly white transplants who are eager to form new communities, to get involved. They enjoyed the creature comforts that came with their shiny suburban homes. I just love the convenience and modern styling of this built-in gas range. You know, I'm so proud of it, it's almost indecent of me. But even if they embraced the mid-century homemaker ideal, some women wanted more than that. Michelle Nickerson interviewed several of them for her book, Mothers of Conservatism. More than one woman I talked to said, well, I just didn't want to sit around by the pool all day. Or, I, you know, I just was not comfortable playing bridge all the time. And I felt as if I had something that I wanted to do for the world. Some women went out and joined the workforce, but others found purpose elsewhere. I guess I just veered to politics as something exciting to do. That's Marie Koenig a Pasadena resident who Nickerson interviewed in 2001. I was just a plain, ordinary, patriotic American. And probably the best way to be an American is to get yourself involved in patriotic organizations. Koenig discovered a community of women just like her. They met up in groups with names like the Freedom Club, the American Public Relations Forum, and the Tuesday Morning Study Club. These organizations would meet in people's homes. You might be served coffee. And even though these were not called women's organizations, it was almost always women who showed up. The seats would be lined up in rows, and they would listen to a speaker. We Americans don't realize how lucky we've been thus far in avoiding the cold, materialistic human controls imposed by collectivism, communism, socialism. James W. Fifield, the host of the Freedom Story radio show, ran one of the clubs. I said, thus far, but I fear for the future. In fact, there are already signs of decay. In gathering after gathering, the message was very clear. A creeping leftist threat was chipping away at American values. And for women like Marie Koenig, everything started to click into place. I guess I learned a lot and figured out that there was something peculiar going on in the country. These women, they're very concerned about the idea that freedom-loving 
ordinary folk are being threatened by dangerous ideas. In the 1950s, American society was changing in ways that frightened them. They were concerned about immigrants. They were concerned about desegregation. And they found handy explanations for those fears in communism. There's the current idea that any social change is almost sure to be an improvement. Communism and socialism are being sold to great masses of people just on that basis. Beliefs like these cut across class lines, and they weren't limited to one political party. At this point, the term conservative wasn't even really being used as an identifier. But these women formed the vanguard of what would soon become a powerful national force. And suburban Los Angeles was the perfect place for it to happen. California is the home of these new networks of superhighways. And what it means is that women with automobiles can move around and it makes them pretty effective at political organizing. To counter the communist threat, California women like Marie Koenig got together in study groups. They held workshops and collaborated on newsletters and leaflets. Practically every minute that didn't take up the laundry and the cooking and the shopping, you know, was involved in all of these organizations. Koenig believed that women were fulfilling a vital role in the fight against international socialism. Well, you know, men don't have time to be running around doing the things that we women do. They don't have time to go and sit and write letters or whatever. They see themselves as thoroughly modern women, even though they themselves have chosen a more traditional path. They embraced the term housewife as a badge of honor, even if they didn't love the chores. They believed in traditional gender roles and took pride in what they saw as their innate female qualities, because it was those attributes that made mothers the perfect red hunters. Kind of this understanding of a mother's instinct, the notion that women were more patient and attuned to their environment that made them better at recognizing communism as it was unfolding before everyone's eyes. The California women saw an opportunity to support the fight in Washington that was being led by Senator Joseph McCarthy. It is a pattern of deliberate communist infiltration. Impossible, you say? Yes. Unbelievable, yes. But there you have it. It is all a matter of cold record. McCarthy was on a mission to drive out the subversives he claimed were hiding in the top ranks of government. The housewife activists saw a threat lurking closer to home. They feared that their communities were falling under the influence of so-called experts, leftist administrators, academics, and social scientists who were using their authority to gain control of Americans' lives. And as mothers, their most immediate concern was with their children's schools. They come to perceive changes happening in the classrooms. They come to see this as communistic. And parents are in an uproar. They were alarmed by teaching methods that emphasized kids' emotional well-being and by the use of educational materials developed by the UN. And parents interpret this as a form of indoctrination. So the women took action. 
they wrote into newspapers attacking the new policies and tried to stymie the plans of administrators at every step. Two women ultimately got elected to the Los Angeles School Board. They fought to ban educational material and got teachers fired and blacklisted. They realized they actually could do this, and it developed a kind of momentum. As the housewife activists notched victory after victory, membership in their organizations continued to grow, and their tactics started being emulated across the country. The minute women of the United States of America have banded together to fight for God and for country. This is the founder of the Minute Women, a group that swelled to 50,000 members in 47 states. We can do that only if all we women hold hands together. By all women, what she really meant were white Christian ones. In 1955, after battling school administrators, the activists were ready for their next target, a new set of experts with the power to indoctrinate mental health professionals. Mental and emotional illness is a name that covers a hundred disorders which touch the core and fiber of 10 million American lives. American psychiatry was in the middle of a growth spurt in the 1950s. Mental illness was no longer seen as just an issue for traumatized veterans. You mean it can happen to anybody? Anybody you live with. The very people you live with. The federal government pumped hundreds of millions into mental health programs. Psychiatric reforms were being introduced across the nation, including that proposal to finally bring proper mental health care to Alaska. In 1955, Newsweek declared that the U.S. was without a doubt the most psychiatrically oriented nation in the world. The mental health movement is one of the great pressures in the direction of sanity and eventually peace on Earth. To conservatives, they saw this new enthusiasm for mental health as being suspicious. For what could be more dangerous than giving liberal so-called experts direct access to people's heads? The vulnerable minds ripe for brainwashing. The housewife activists' fear of brainwashing came out of the Korean War. They heard terrifying stories of American POWs subjected to psychological manipulation their minds rewired to support the enemy. Fellow Americans, join us as guests of the Chinese People's Volunteer Army. Stop being the tools of the rich capitalists. Now, those were soldiers getting tortured in prisons overseas. But the California women were convinced it was happening in the United States, too, that American psychiatrists were really communist agents out to brainwash the populace. And they thought they had proof, a mysterious book called The Brainwashing Manual. The publishers claimed it was a secret Soviet textbook they'd discovered and translated into English, that it was written by a Russian trainer with instructions on how to brainwash Americans under the guise of mental health. Chapter 9, The Organization of Mental Health Campaigns. If a psychiatric ward could be established in every hospital, in every city, it is certain that every prominent citizen of that nation could come under the ministrations of psychopolitical operatives. The brainwashing manual was a hoax. It was a piece of propaganda, not the words of a real Russian brainwasher. People have made various claims about who really wrote it, but one of the main names that gets thrown around is L. Ron Hubbard, 
the founder of the Church of Scientology. His organization was actually one of the first to publish the book. Brainwashing goes on every day in these United States. And in Dianetics, we can do a great deal to wipe out the effects of brainwashing. The housewife activists shared the book as authentic evidence of a psychiatric plot. And they believed that put them in even greater danger because psychiatrists would now try to silence them by declaring them insane. The women sensed that doctors were already labeling them crazy, and they weren't totally wrong. Basically, yes, they were correct in that mental health professionals and academics and journalists were criticizing their mental health. Experts really were starting to say that the paranoid beliefs of the far right might be signs of psychological distress. And the women feared what that kind of diagnosis might lead to next. There was this belief that they were going to be somehow taken away. Some people I interviewed actually went to get diagnoses of health that they could then tuck away somewhere in case someone tried to pick them up and put them into an institution. And then they could wave these documents and say, I am of sound mind, and you can't lock me up. The idea of right-wing housewives being stolen away to an asylum may have sounded like pure paranoia. But then, something happened that seemed to confirm their worst fears. Just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that they aren't out to get you. We'll be back in a minute. On February 23, 1955, a defendant was taken into a federal courthouse in Vermont and charged with violating the military draft law. But the accused wasn't a young man who dodged his duties. It was a 44-year-old woman, a mother of three from the small town of Bethel named Lucille Miller. Lucille Miller, you know, she was a full-time homemaker. Her husband was sort of everyone's mechanic. Daniel Lachance is an associate professor of history at Emory University. He's the author of an upcoming book called Mrs. Miller's Constitution. Her sort of side gig was painting pastoral images of, you know, forest creatures, deer, onto, you know, wooden plates that she would try to sell. If painting was her hobby, her mission was publishing an anti-Semitic newsletter called The Green Mountain Rifleman. A typical rant attacked, you know, quote-unquote, Jew-ridden newspapers in the state. She started publishing the newsletter in 1952. It had a circulation of a few hundred at most, possibly as few as 25 people. Miller knew about what the housewife activists were doing in California, but her writing was far more extreme. Paranoid screeds about the government coming to take citizens' guns, Jewish lobbyists forcing black people to vote, and how the atomic bomb was a hoax. They aimed to generate controversy. They wanted to sort of drum up a scandal. And what landed Miller in court was her hatred for the draft. Lucille Miller does not believe that the Peacetime Draft Act is constitutional. Um, she thinks it's a violation of the 13th Amendment's prohibition on involuntary servitude akin to slavery. 
In her mind, a larger plot was at work. Her logic here is pretty hard to follow. She seemed to believe that President Eisenhower's Jewish strategists were sending able-bodied men off to the military so immigrants could quietly replace them. In her newsletter, she called it a bloodless conquest of America. So she sends letters to uh, young men in her Vermont town, telling them that the draft law is unconstitutional to send her their draft cards, that they don't have to register for the draft, and that they shouldn't. Encouraging people to dodge the draft was itself against the law, which she knew very well. So she saw what she was doing as, you know, an act of civil disobedience and clearly wants to be arrested. And she is. At her arraignment, Miller pleaded not guilty to 18 federal counts. The judge set her bail at $1,000, and she was taken out of the courtroom. But then she marched right back in. And she says, I demand an immediate trial. I'm not going to furnish bail. And she also told them that she didn't believe she needed a lawyer. And that really freaked out the folks in the courtroom. The U.S. attorney stepped in to express his misgivings to the judge. Something's wrong here. Look, she's, she's facing 18 violations of the federal law and doesn't want a lawyer. And then the prosecutor said something that would shift the story from a small town case to a matter of huge national significance. The U.S. attorney says to the judge, uh, I don't know if she's sane. And the judge, he listens to the prosecutor and he says, yeah, I don't know if she's competent to stand trial. Lucille Miller was a vicious racist and anti-Semite. In her newsletters, she routinely spouted far-fetched theories that even others on the far right might find loony. But in a court of law, Questioning someone's sanity was an extreme step. Clearly, you know, she has extreme beliefs, but by today's standards, nobody would have suggested that she was incompetent. But back in the 1950s, Lucille Miller was seen differently. And that was at least in part because she was a woman. In a social world that assumed that women who did those kinds of things, women who sort of advocated as fiercely as she did at her arraignment, were not mentally balanced. Because that's not things that women should do. And the judge orders a psychiatric evaluation to determine whether she's fit to stand trial. He told her that if the doctors found her competent, then she'd be back in his courtroom. She snapped, you bet I'll be back here she was taken away to a Vermont mental hospital. She stayed there for nearly a month undergoing testing. When she finally returned to court, the doctors gave their assessment. Lucille Miller was insane. They said she was suffering from manic depression, a condition that was often talked about in feminine terms. Manic depression, at its core at this moment, is about sort of the inability to control your emotions, to sort of regulate yourself. The psychiatrist told the court that Miller was apt to be very irritable and easily angered, particularly if people didn't agree with her. I find her politics so loathsome, but you clearly have these, these men who are saying she thinks that she should be able to do what she wants to do and that she doesn't like when people disagree with her. And it's like, well, who doesn't? Miller produced her own witnesses, neighbors who testified that they never found her mentally unbalanced. But the judge disagreed. He said, look, 
your neighbors, as nice as they are, aren't experts in sanity. The judge made his ruling. Lucille Miller was insane and unfit to stand trial. She was allowed to go home to get her affairs in order while she waited to hear what would happen next. Ten days later, she received a telegram from the office of the attorney general. On May 3rd, a federal marshal is going to come to your home and he is going to escort you to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., where you're going to be subjected to treatment until you're competent to stand trial. In less than a week, she would be committed against her will. I don't see her as a passive victim. I think she is a shrewd political actor who desperately wanted attention. Miller spent her remaining days of freedom mounting a public relations campaign. She portrayed herself as a clear victim of political persecution. She says, look, we are trapped in this world that's overrun by newfangled liberalism. And if you don't say things that the people that run this world believe to be true and you challenge them, they are now wielding their power to have you declared insane and to neutralize you. In her newsletter, Miller laid out whose interests would be served by silencing her voice. Jewish organizations protecting their communist friends. As she would later write, you don't argue with conspiring hyenas. You send them slinking off at gunpoint. At 10 a.m. on May 3rd, 1955, there was a knock at her door. Two marshals were outside, ready to take her away. She demanded that they show her the commitment order. She studies it for a minute, and then she says, this is totally unconstitutional. I'm not going anywhere. And she warned the two men that if they came back, they'd be looking down the barrel of a gun. The marshals left to regroup. After a few hours, they tried again. Only this time, they were met by Lucille's husband, Manuel. And he made good on Lucille's promise. He pointed a loaded rifle at them, declaring, I will prevent any intruder from crossing my threshold. As the marshals called for backup, word was spreading that something was brewing at the Miller home. Neighbors gathered outside, while Miller called up journalists. She declared her home the Alamo with a telephone. Photographers and reporters began massing at the house, just as she'd hoped. She wants to be a martyr. She wants publicity. They even took, like, staged publicity photos of Manuel standing next to Lucille holding his gun. They're preparing for the inevitable. At 5 p.m., seven hours after the standoff began, the public safety commissioner made one last attempt to get the Millers to surrender without violence. But again, they refused to back down. And that was it. That was the last straw for law enforcement. Authorities began turning cars away from the home. They closed off access to the Millers altogether. Now, nearly all of the town's 1,500 residents were outside watching from a distance. And at 10 o'clock that night, the authorities fired tear gas bombs into the lower level of their home. As the cloud of smoke filled the house, the Millers were sent fleeing upstairs. Half-blinded, they crawled out the second-story windows above the porch into the path of the search beams. And they light up the couple as they climb out of the windows onto the roof. And Manuel cries out a surrender. He says, all right, fellows, and he throws his rifle to the ground. 
Lucille Miller lost consciousness and was carried down the stairs in a stretcher. When she came to, the marshals loaded her into their car, heading first to the local hospital and then on to the mental institution in Washington, D.C. Her husband was handcuffed and arrested. But Manuel would later say that one of the Vermont state troopers who took him into custody whispered to him, I don't blame you a damn bit, fella. After 12 hours, the siege was over. News of the standoff at the Miller home had started spreading far outside of Vermont. Photos of their capture appeared in papers across the country. And the housewife activists of California were on high alert. Some of them had actually spoken to Miller on the phone shortly before the tear gas was thrown. They had warned that patriotic Americans could be taken away to mental institutions for their political views. And now they believed it was actually happening. When they spoke out about Miller's case, they downplayed her rabid anti-Semitism. Instead, they portrayed her as a courageous mom and a victim. And they wondered who would be next. Now, they were on guard for anything that would put them in danger of being declared insane. They scoured through legislation, looking for language that might give more power to psychiatrists. They see themselves needing to be vigilant. Historian Michelle Nickerson again. Where are the time bombs built into these bills that are going to explode once they're passed? In December 1955, members of a Los Angeles women's organization came across a bill working its way through the U.S. Congress. It appears to be a straightforward attempt by the federal government to open a psychiatric facility in the territory of Alaska. But they were convinced that they could read between the lines. And what they saw shocked them. Oh my God, they're trying to establish a prison camp in Alaska where leftists could send conservatives, anybody they thought was dangerous. This is going to be a gulag. And a conspiracy theory was born. We'll be right back. On January 24, 1956, Mrs. Jean Birkeland of the California Minute Women published an unsigned article in a small newspaper. She sounded the alarm about a bill heading to the U.S. Senate. The headline was now Siberia, USA. It is entirely within the realm of possibility that we may be establishing in Alaska our own version of the Siberia slave camps run by the Russian government. Birkeland warned that nobody was safe from being shipped off in the middle of the night, under the pretense that they were mentally ill. She claimed that dandruff, headaches, toothaches, or fallen arches were enough to get you an insanity diagnosis. And the government roundup was potentially massive. She pointed out that the area being set aside was one million acres of Arctic wasteland. This legislation will place every resident of the United States at the mercy of the whims and fancies of any person with whom they might have a disagreement, causing a charge of mental illness to be placed against them, with immediate deportation to Siberia, USA. Very quickly, 
Berkland's article was reprinted in newspapers across California and in Arizona, Ohio, and Texas. Soon, an influential right-wing commentator picked it up and amplified it to a nationwide audience. He warned about how easy it would be for the government to put someone out of the way for good by administering drugs that would drive them insane. Who exactly would be doing this was never clear, but the theory took off anyway. It spread so rapidly because it really fires people's imaginations. Historian Michelle Nickerson again. I mean, it was that short and sweet title, Siberia, USA. We do not wish to be alarmists, but we think the time has come to say in no uncertain terms that with infiltration in our own government, anything could happen. It wouldn't take a rebellion with guns and bombs for communists to come in and change American society as we know it. It can just creep in because people aren't paying attention. Now on high alert, concerned citizens across the country took action. All of a sudden, senators are getting letters like they can't even keep up. The chief clerk of the Senate Interior Committee said, in eight years here, I've never seen anything like it. Bob Bartlett, the delegate from Alaska who spearheaded the bill, was stunned. He said the messages coming in were filled with such marvelously strange statements that no man could hope to follow them all. And all of this couldn't have happened at a worse time, in the middle of Alaska's push for statehood. So our reputation was on the line. That's Karen Perdue again, the former Alaska health commissioner. It didn't help, I'm sure, for people to view us as a place where people wouldn't have rights and that this would be a, a concentration camp. In fact, it's just, it's preposterous. When there had been internment camps in Alaska during World War II, it was Native Alaskans who'd been the victims. But actual Alaskans weren't really relevant to the conspiracy theorists. As an editorial in a Fairbanks newspaper put it, their attitude seemed to be, who cares if a bunch of Eskimos have problems? The Siberia-USA theory also perpetuated the myth that Alaska was some kind of desolate wasteland. And that, that is just replete in our history, you know, that we are a horrible, frozen place. And, you know, I've been to Siberia, and actually Siberians don't think about themselves as in a wasteland either. In Congress, Bob Bartlett already had to defend Alaskans against insinuations that they weren't loyal enough for statehood. They're Americans to the core. No hint of communistic infiltration of any kind. Now he felt forced to dispel all these rumors about a psychiatric gulag. So less than a month after the Siberia USA article was published, a Senate subcommittee held public hearings in Washington, D.C. And women flew in to represent their organizations and to protest the bill. And they sat there at the tables and gave testimony to this effect. We respectfully want to tell you that you don't see what's happening here. We as women are better prepared because we have time to go through these bills in a way that you can't. And if what they were suggesting sounded outlandish, witness after witness said, you only had to look at what happened to Lucille Miller in Vermont. You see Lucille Miller being invoked as an example of the ways in which psychiatrists have this kind of tyrannical power. Historian Daniel Lachance again. 
that this deep state is profoundly undemocratic, that they can decide anybody is crazy. A lot of people found the conspiracy theory launched by the California housewives totally preposterous, including plenty on the right. The National Review, they're mocking the women and they're rolling their eyes, calling them essentially cranks. This is weird. This is dangerous. Ha ha. These are not real conservatives. But the housewives' opposition was so loud that the bill was now in jeopardy. Something had to give. And weirdly enough, it was Barry Goldwater who stood up for the bill. The Arizona senator was a rising star in the Republican Party and a political hero to many of the activists opposing the Alaska bill. His colleagues put him forward to say, look, you need to help us out here. These are kind of your people, and they're going to listen to you. Goldwater made a simple proposal just cut out the most controversial section of the bill, the part that the activists mistakenly believed enabled any American anywhere to be committed to Alaska. And it took that, really, to get the bill through. It was just a small modification. It didn't do anything to stop the construction of a mental health facility on Alaskan land. But that tiny change is what broke the logjam. The bill passed the Senate unanimously on June 7th and cleared the House the next month. On July 28, 1956, President Eisenhower signed it into law. A mental health facility would be built in Alaska, despite all the protests of the California housewives. Their own ideological ally had engineered their defeat. But that's not how the activists saw it at all. They had forced U.S. senators to alter a bill and they'd proved that they could cause a national uproar. I do think it's a victory. They realized, oh, this is what we can do. We actually have power. So I think the women, just like throughout history, women are, are about the most important factor in a nation's wherewithal. This is the California activist Marie Koenig again. Without them, I think we'd be a totally communist nation. The women kept pushing as conservatism began to coalesce into a coherent and powerful movement, embodied in the 1964 presidential campaign of Barry Goldwater. And they jump right on board. I think he's the first man to run for president that I've seen in the past 30 years that will stand on the principles of the founding fathers who wrote the federal constitution. Women become very active in the newly conservative Republican Party. In the 60s and 70s, though, the focus for conservative women began to shift to obscenity, sex education, and abortion. And as for mental health, that became a target for the left. Liberals were now calling out the mental health profession for practices that were paternalistic and racist, and for pathologizing homosexuality. By stigmatizing and scapegoating the mental patient, the society gives a very strong warning to others not to step out of line or break the rules. Because if you do, you might be called crazy too and get locked away. The motivations and arguments were very different. But these sentiments weren't entirely dissimilar from what Lucille Miller had been saying in 1955. She's sort of ahead of her time in some ways in anticipating a backlash to a world that seems to be more and more comfortable with ceding kind of power over people's lives to experts. 
Lucille Miller spent five weeks at the mental hospital in D.C. before she was sent back to Vermont for trial. A jury found her guilty of all 18 counts she faced for violating the military draft law. The judge gave her a one-year suspended sentence, so she went right back to her home in Bethel. She kept publishing her anti-Semitic newsletter, but she never again got national attention. In the decades since, conservatives' claims of political persecution have endured. So have conspiracy theories about a shadowy deep state. But as for the uproar over the Alaskan mental health bill, that seems to have faded from memory. At least, most people's memory. I don't know if you're aware that there was a plan in 1955 in this country, Ted, there was going to be a Siberia-USA set up in Alaska to send mental patients. That's David Miscavige, the leader of the Church of Scientology, in 1992, in one of the only interviews he's ever given. This sounds very odd. Nobody's ever heard about it. That's in no small part thanks to the Church of Scientology. The way the Scientologists tell it, L. Ron Hubbard was the one who uncovered the conspiracy, named it Siberia USA, and masterminded its defeat. He began a campaign to alert the public and the press to the true meaning of this grand plan. The country has LRH and Scientology to thank for destroying this master plan that came within hours of becoming law. None of this is true. Hubbard may have possibly fabricated the brainwashing manual, but he was not behind the Siberia-USA campaign. That dubious credit belongs to the activist women of California. None of these conspiracy theorists were ever concerned with what actually mattered most here. Lost in all their wild accusations were the people the bill was really about, the residents of Alaska suffering from mental illness. Yes, the national agenda didn't have anything to do with the care of people who needed help. That's Karen Perdue again. While the far-right activists concocted fantasies about being snatched from their homes and sent off to an institution, for Alaskans, that kind of trauma was real. In 2008, Purdue helped found a project called The Lost Alaskans to try to document the more than 3,500 residents who had been shipped off to Morningside in Oregon and to figure out what happened to them. We went to the National Archives and they wheeled out this pile of paper, you know, many, 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 many files. And in there we found the names of all of the patients. So we were there for seven days, and on the last day, in the last afternoon, we found my uncle's name. Nobody in her family knew the full story of her uncle Guilford's institutionalization. Now, they had an answer. It says, he was patient number 1559, Delato Indian, age 14. Diagnosis, psychosis with mental deficiency, Episodes of instability and excitement, unstable, mischievous, and sullen. Her uncle was later transferred to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., the same facility where Lucille Miller had gone. He was eventually released and tried to return to Alaska, but was arrested there for stealing a parka because he didn't have any clothes. He died not long after. At the age of 48, he had spent less than one year of his life outside of institutions. You know, that's not an unusual story. That's, that's a story, though, that, you know, we, we as advocates have to correct to sure that that does not happen. 
The Alaska Psychiatric Institute finally opened in Anchorage in 1962, three years after Alaska became a state. And the practice of committing the mentally ill by jury stopped. This whole concept of convicting people of being insane, that has ended. However, our jails are today our largest mental health treatment facilities in the country. As the state's health commissioner, Karen Perdue would oversee the mental health facility that Alaskans had to fight so hard for in the 1950s. The opening of the hospital didn't magically solve everything. It would face the same problems of any psychiatric institution in America. But now, those problems were Alaskans to solve. Evan Chung is one year's senior producer. Next time, the season finale of One Year 1955. A decade after they were disfigured in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, 25 Japanese women get a life-changing opportunity for medical care. But they'll have to travel to the country that carried out the attack. There's so many ways that this might go wrong, that might backfire. And it was now, right then and there, the critical time that their future depended on. I have to do something. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more of One Year 1955, subscribe to Slate Plus. At the end of the season, Slate Plus subscribers will get a member-exclusive episode with a whole new story and interview. In addition, as a member, you'll also hear every Slate podcast without ads and never hit the paywall on Slate's site. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash one year plus. Again, that's slate.com slash one year plus. This episode of One Year was written by Evan Chung. It was produced by Kelly Jones and Evan Chung with additional production by Sophie Summergrad. It was edited by me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director, with Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Michelle Nickerson's book is called Mothers of Conservatism, Women and the Post-War Right. Daniel Lachance's forthcoming book is called Mrs. Miller's Constitution, Civil Liberties and the Radical Right in Cold War America. Bob Bartlett and the Alaska Mental Health Act by Klaus M. Noski was another valuable resource in the making of this episode. You can learn more about the Lost Alaskans Project at MorningsideHospital.com. Some of the audio you heard is courtesy of the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral History and Public History, California State University Fullerton, also from special collections at the University of Oregon, and the Alaska Polar Regions Collections and Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1955 at oneyearatslate.com. You can call us on the one-year hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Ellen Ganley, Lori Neufeld, Jean Nemirovsky, Christina Cotarucci, Susan Matthews, Katie Shepard, Hilary Fry, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. We'll be back next week with the season finale of One Year 1955.